0: Our reading this evening comes from Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to chapter 4, verse 12. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by his faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is this blessing then only for the uncircumcised? Oh sorry. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So far God's word.
1: Turn with me uh, in the Book of Confessions to the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're going to be reading chapter eight. Uh, paragraphs 5 through 8. This can be found on page 112. And we'll be reading the right-hand column. Again, the, the modern English study version. The Lord Jesus... By his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father, he purchased not only reconciliation but also an eternal or excuse me an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given to him. paragraph six. Although the work of redemption was not actually accomplished by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the power, efficacy, and benefits of it were applied to the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices by which Christ was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent's head and to be the Lamb slain from the beginning of the world. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paragraph 7. In the work of mediation, Christ acts according to both natures. Each nature does what is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of his person, that which is proper to one nature is in Scripture, sometimes attributed to the person designated by the other nature. In paragraph 8, To all those for whom Christ purchased redemption, he certainly and effectually applies and communicates it. He makes intercession for them and reveals to them, in and by the word, the mysteries of salvation. He effectually persuades them by His Spirit to believe and obey, and governs their hearts by His Word and Spirit. He overcomes all their enemies by His almighty power and wisdom, in such a manner and by such ways as are most agreeable to His wonderful and unsearchable administration. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on His Word as we consider it this afternoon. Our Heavenly Father, as we consider uh, the summary of the accomplishment of Jesus Christ that's found in the Westminster Confession, help us to appreciate the depth and the breadth, the length and the height of His salvation, to see the splendor and the wonder and to stand in awe of our Savior, but also to find refuge and shelter for our souls in the certainty of his accomplishment help us in this we pray by your spirit's presence and power we ask in Jesus name amen beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ up to this point we have considered Christ's office as our mediator that he had this appointment by the father and in his incarnation he was placed in this office and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be the go-between between a holy God and offending sinners who are chosen by the Father. This afternoon, as we conclude uh, chapter 8, I would like us to consider the accomplishment and the application of Christ's work as our mediator. What we are considering this afternoon is the application of his work, the application of grace, how how God administers and that God administers the work of Jesus Christ to the elect. How He saves us, how He intervenes in our lives, how He comes to us and secures us in that salvation and this is the hope we have for the elect of God now now as we reflect on this there's there's a consideration of election that we've already heard from the the uh, Westminster Confession it comes in in God's eternal decree in chapter 3 as God has appointed the elect to glory so he has by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means to that end, that that God is going to work in such a way, that God is going to use the instruments that he has designed, that he's going to perform the spiritual life-giving surgery in his way, that it will certainly be accomplished. And therefore, his chosen ones, all of them from being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ And are effectually. Now, that word effectually comes to the fore again and again and again. What that means is that we can be certain that it works, it's effective, it does its job, it accomplishes God's purpose. So, all those will be called to faith in Christ by His Spirit working in due season. So, we're talking about the application of Christ's work to the elect. And and how not only how redemption is accomplished, but also how according to God's decree it's applied. So it's one thing to say, yeah, Christ has done that. Yeah, and we celebrate what Christ has done, an amazing truth that it is, and and many will, will agree with that. But even more particularly, not only that it has been accomplished, that we can celebrate the truth of Christ's accomplishment but we can celebrate the fact that Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit are going to work, are going to work effectually, effectively, powerfully to apply that salvation. So that those whom the Father has chosen will, without doubt, be saved. That that grace that God has to save the elect is irresistible. We can't withstand it, and God will accomplish this purpose. Now we need to be careful with that as well. Because an elect person is not to boast in their election. An elect person is not to boast in their election. But they are to boast in Christ's accomplishment. And that's what we're considering this afternoon. We're not to say, well, well, we're elect and, and how happy we are that we are elect and we should be happy if we are elect. We are to be thankful and we are to be grateful for that. But the, the, the fundamental reason for our boasting and our rejoicing and, and our recognition is that this has come not by our accomplishment, not by our attaining a particular status of being elect, but all in grace, through the accomplishment and application of the work of Jesus Christ, what he has done. And so that's what we're going to consider this afternoon. First of all, his complete salvation. Secondly, his promised salvation. And thirdly, his applied salvation. This is the accomplishment of Christ. It is a complete salvation. And paragraph 5 from the opening sentence makes an important identification. Listen to what this paragraph says. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father. He perfectly obeyed and sacrificed himself. I'd like to consider those in reverse order. He sacrificed himself. That refers to his atonement. That refers to his death on the cross. By his sacrifice, we recognize that he bore the wrath of God against our sin. That is what Romans 3, verse 23 through 25 are reminding us of. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are rightly under God's wrath. Paul has been talking about that in Romans 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. We're all worthy of condemnation. But the wonder of the cross is that Christ on the cross bore that just judgment which we deserved. God's justice must be satisfied. His judgment for our sin must be that there is an eternal death, an infinite death. And it's only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that could do that because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Christ was uniquely qualified, as we've considered already, uniquely qualified as our mediator appointed by God, but also in his person as the one person with two natures, with a divine nature and a human nature. He had to be human because only a man can pay for sin. But the reality is, is a sinner can't pay for others. A sinner only increases his debt. Somebody who has a history of sin cannot ransom his soul because the cost of the ransom of his soul is great. But a man needs to pay for his sin. God doesn't punish anything else for the sin of man. He must punish man. And so this mediator needed to be man. But similarly, no man, no mere man could bear the infinite weight of God's justice and his judgment, his wrath against sin. If Jesus were a mere man, he would have been consumed and destroyed in his bearing divine judgment. But being God, that divine nature supported the human nature as he bore the judgment of God on the cross. There is no other mediator. And when we reflect on this character of the atonement, that is what we mean when we say, Jesus paid for my sins. Now so often... I found it that that we have this this rather elementary understanding, and the Gospel is simple but but we kind of leave the salvation of Christ at that reality if if you ask the children well, well, what did Jesus do? Oh, he paid for my sins on the cross and that's there's nothing wrong with that that's absolutely correct, but it's not complete there's more to it, and that's what the first sentence of of this paragraph is reminding us the Lord Jesus. By his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself. When we're talking about the sacrifice of himself, we're talking about his atonement. But there's more. He has also offered to God perfect obedience to the law. We often don't think about this. But this is what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 2. That being in the form and nature of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death. That's part of Christ's humiliation. That he was perfectly, perfectly, exactly obedient to the Father. His perfect obedience fulfills all the requirements of God's law. You see, not only has he borne the wrath of God against our sin. But we have failed not simply because we have sinned. We failed because we haven't perfectly obeyed God's law. And Christ provides that as well. This perfect obedience fulfills all the requirements of the law. That's what we've just sung. We've, we've celebrated that, that in you we face our judge and maker unafraid. Before the throne, absolved we stand. Isn't that amazing? Absolved. Our sins are, are dealt with completely. But then uh, uh, Margaret Clarkson continues, Your love has met your law's Demands. Isn't that encouraging? No matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how intensely you've tried to serve God, you know, you know if you're honest in your heart of hearts that your works and your attitudes and your life doesn't measure up. You want it to. You desire that it would. But you know that there's sin in your life. What do you flee to? Well, Christ is going to forgive it. Yes, indeed, that's one part of His work. But there's another part. When you're weak and you can't fulfill it, celebrate the work of Jesus that He has come as your mediator and His love has met the law's demands. His perfect obedience is there for you. I think one of the reasons we miss this in Romans Is because Paul takes chapters to unfold the reality of the sacrificial aspect of Christ's atonement. He goes on about that from Romans 3 right through Romans 6. But then we come to Romans 7 and 8. And there he begins to address the significance of Christ's obedience. Turn with me for a moment to Romans 7. Romans 7. As Paul makes this transition, Romans 7, verse 4. In our understanding of the law, we how do we relate to the law? Well, without Christ, we don't have a right relationship to the law. Without Christ, the, the law is going to become a burden. But in Christ, through Christ, and, and under Christ, we have a, a different relationship with the law. Romans 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that, and here's the purpose, in order that we may bear fruit for God. You understand what Paul is saying here. We're going to keep reading, so don't turn away. But but what Paul is saying here is that when you understand you've died to the law with Christ's body, when you understand that Christ has perfectly obeyed the law on your behalf, when you understand that His love has accomplished that, and you have this new relationship in Christ to the law, the design of the God in that is that you will bear fruit. That it will actually be fruitful In your sanctification, when you realize that you don't have to obey this law as a taskmaster, you can obey this law out of gratitude for everything that Christ has done for you. Paul's going to unfold that in verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. You see what Paul is saying is our relationship with the law in Christ is now a Christ-like relationship. He unfolds us further in Romans 8. Look at Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. You see, you can't do it. Because we're weakened in the flesh. How did God do this? He's done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that, The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What Paul is appealing to is not some sort of antinomianism. Antinomianism is the notion that, well, we don't need the law of God. We can just ignore the law of God. We can just live as we please. No, that's not the case. In fact, we need to see that the righteous requirements of the law need to be fulfilled. That we have an obligation to those. But that obligation is not in the flesh because as much as we live in the flesh, as much as we try to accomplish it by ourselves, we're just going to end up frustrated. We're going to end up captivated. We're going to end up destroyed. But if we do that in Christ, when we believe in Christ, we begin to see that God has done what we can't do in order that the righteous requirements of the law so that we may live in the fullness of what Christ has accomplished. This is the wonder of our Mediator. This is the wonder of His accomplishment that by His perfect obedience and sacrifice of Himself, He has secured us in our relationship with God. In faith, you will celebrate the redemption from sin and the new life empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in accordance with God's will as it's summarized for us in the law. Both. Both. The celebration of of deliverance from the penalty of sin and the celebration of the accomplishment of the law are a result of Christ's complete salvation. So what purpose then did the law have? Secondly, we need to consider a promised salvation. When we understand the, the relationship between between obedience and, and faith, between Christ's work of, of atoning for sin and perfectly fulfilling the law, we can see why Paul beautifully uses Abraham as an example for the Jews. There was an error in the church of Rome, an error that arose in the early church because of the influence of Judaism. For the Jews were saying, those who had converted to Christ were saying, okay, Let's just take half of that, that Christ has paid for your sins. But then they would go on and say, But we have to follow the law. For them, that obedience started with circumcision. And if you want to live in a way that is faithful to God, then you have to be circumcised. And Paul says, No way, that's not the case. The complete salvation, the sacrifice and the obedience, that complete salvation was found in the Old Testament. And for that, he points us to the example of Abraham. You see, Abraham was reckoned by God as righteous by having the sacrifice for his sin and the complete obedience, righteous before God by faith. And how did he have that? He had that as someone who wasn't circumcised. And so for the Jews in the New Testament, it's not go back to circumcision, but understand the full impact and the full import of what Christ has done in your complete salvation. That's the point of paragraph six. Although the work of redemption was not actually accomplished by Christ until after his incarnation, it didn't happen until he died on the cross and rose from the grave. Yet, that work was so powerful and so effective, efficacious, and the benefits of it were applied to the elect. Even the, the, the people before Christ who believed in that promise, who believed in the promise of what Christ would do, the, 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 the faith by which they believed in what God had promised was sufficient to save them, to secure their relationship with God. You see, the salvation was the same. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the application of his salvation is the same. Whether it's a Jew in the Old Testament or or the church in the New Testament, we're all called to put our faith in the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. This paragraph is one of the beautiful paragraphs of the Reformed understanding of salvation. It's unique in the Christian world. It's what we need to recognize to counter some of the error that is found in other churches. That suggests that there are different ways of salvation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There aren't. Because the Savior is the same and the salvation is the same. What is different is the transition from promise to fulfillment. From the seed growing into a plant, growing into a sapling, growing into a tree, producing the fruit. Ultimately, we have the fulfillment with the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. But it's the same, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New. In this way, the Old Testament can be a guide for our faith and life just as much as the New Testament. Because both Reveal the work of Jesus. And thirdly, not only is this a promised salvation, not only is this a complete salvation, thirdly, this is an applied salvation. This afternoon, we close with paragraph 8. To all those for whom Christ purchased redemption, He certainly and effectually, powerfully, effectively, it's going to happen, He applies it and communicates it. Not only has He, he accomplished it, so you see, what, what we recognize in the Gospel when, when the Gospel is being proclaimed, it's not just an offer. It's there for you to take or to leave. No, as God communicates it to us through the preaching of the Gospel, He is calling us to recognize that He will apply it. He does more than just simply make it available. He certainly applies it to our lives. He effectually calls us to trust in Him. This will, will be worked out more fully in detail in chapters 10 and following when we consider the effectual calling of the Gospel that the God is working with us to, to draw us to Himself and He will accomplish His purpose. But as we close this afternoon, we close recognizing that when Christ Will do what he has said. We can recognize that salvation, salvation from start to finish, is the work of God and is applied by God. And that's what we celebrate in our mediator. That Jesus now intercedes on behalf of the elect. That Jesus himself is the one who overcomes all our enemies by His almighty power and wisdom in such a manner and by such ways that will show that it is His work of grace. That He makes intercession for us and reveals to us in His Word the mysteries of His salvation. That He persuades us. He persuades us by the Spirit to believe and obey Him and to be governed by His Word. That what we're doing as we recognize the work of God as we're surrendering ourselves to Him to accomplish His purpose. That's what we recognize in worship. That's what we recognize that God is doing through the preaching of His Word, through, through the, the unfolding of His Word, for, through the revealing. We're not just transferring information here. God is working. God is working through His Spirit to to unite us to Jesus Christ and to bring salvation and to apply that salvation of Christ to our souls. Oh, the wonder of the ways of Christ that we celebrate as our Savior. That He has a complete salvation. He has a secure salvation. And He has an applied salvation for us to be reconciled to the Father. Praise God for this glorious grace and gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.